Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome award-winning broadcaster and writer Indira Naidu to Books, Books, Books to talk about her most recent book, The Space Between the Stars, on love, loss, and the magical power of nature to heal, published earlier this year by Murdoch Books, and which has quickly catapulted into the non-fiction bestseller list. Let me start by telling you a little bit about Indira, although I'm sure she's very well known to all of my listeners. Indira is one of Australia's most popular, well-loved broadcasters and authors. She began her award-winning career in journalism more than 30 years ago at the ABC. During that time, she has hosted and reported for some of the country's most distinguished news and current affair programs, including ABC TV's Late Edition News and SBS TV's World News Tonight. Indira is a passionate advocate for environmental and food sustainability issues. She was formerly media manager for consumer advocacy group Choice, and in 2008, was a Geneva-based sustainability consultant with the United Nations Trade Development Arm, the International Trade Centre. In 2019, Indira co-hosted the 2CH breakfast radio show, Indira and Trevor, and she's currently the host of ABC Radio's Weekend Nightlife. The Space Between the Stars, the book we'll be talking about today, is her third book. She's also the author of best-selling books, The Edible Balcony and The Edible City. Indira, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Nicole, it's great to be with you. Indira, could you start by telling us what this beautiful book, The Space Between the Stars, is about, please? What the book is about is my deep grief following the uh, suicide of my younger sister, Monica, and how particularly during lockdown and the pandemic restrictions and closed borders, I didn't have access to my family and friends and going to the beach, things that I would normally do to help me heal and get some comfort. All I had was the five kilometres around me where I live in Potts Point. And so that was my space to try to heal and try to come to terms with this, you know, seismic loss in my life. And it was during these daily ISO walks to the Botanic Gardens, I was very lucky that they were nearby, that a wise old tree started to speak to me and introduced me to the wonders of my urban landscape that I think I'd been too distracted before to really appreciate. And one by one, the tree introduced me to the stars, to feathers, to leaves, to clouds, to ants, to birds. And I found myself not only connecting very deeply with the wondrous nature around me, but feeling my heart heal from this tragic loss. And I realized that just because you've had uh, you know, this this big loss in your life, it doesn't mean it has to be a tear in your universe. And nature is all around us to heal us with our anxiety, heal us when we have our losses. And um, it's it's been quite an extraordinary journey because 
During the time of writing the book, I wrote it in my deep, deep grief within a few weeks of my sister dying, which in itself is very unusual. Writing a book is a grief project in itself for a lot of authors. So it was a double grief. And at the same time, I was hoping hosting an overnight late uh, national radio show right across all the closed borders and had a million listeners, all of them going through massive, massive anxiety and grief. So every night I had to sit with their grief. I had to sit with my grief. And I realized that I was learning things about grief and we don't talk about grief in our uh, culture and society enough and we don't have enough direction. This was the first big grief that it ever had to me. I didn't know what to do. So I thought by writing a book, it would help me heal, but hopefully help other people heal uh, with their big griefs as well. There's a lot to unpack there. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about nature and the healing the healing power of nature. We're going to come back to talk about grief. We're going to talk a little bit more about your process in writing this book. But before we do, I'd like you to set the scene a bit. You intersperse the chapters in your book, um, your conversations with experts on various uh, facets of nature, with beautiful excerpts of anecdotes from your childhood. And so I'd like to start there by asking you about your childhood and your relationship with your sisters. So you're the eldest of three. There's only one year between you. And until your sister's death, you were inseparable. So I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about each of the three distinct personalities. Let's start with you. What were you like as a child? Uh, basically, as I still am now, uh, a bossy older sister prefect type, uh, keeping the, the younger ones in line, following the instructions from my parents. We were largely left to roam uh, on our own in our childhood. We're very lucky. Most of our childhood was growing up in the 1970s in smaller country towns. And so the stories I share, I realised they would be so foreign to people today. Uh, we would just get on the bus or walk down the street, jump on our bikes, disappear for the day. Our parents had no idea where we were. There were no mobile phones. We didn't check in with anyone mm. about where we were. And I think we had an invincibility because there was only one year between us. We were tight. We were like our mm. own gang. And we always felt very confident in that, that we could just, you know, climb mountains and jump out of trees and swim across creeks and rivers and we would always be fine. We had a lot of adventures. It, we really did leave, live that secret uh, seven, you know, mm. uh, famous five type of life. And because we moved around a lot as a family, so I was born in South Africa, but we left when I was quite small. We lived in Zambia, England. Then we moved to Australia in the 1970s. Then we went back to Africa. To Zimbabwe. Uh, Zimbabwe during the Civil mm. War there. Mm. And I think all those dislocations even made us tighter because often we were leaving family and friends. We were arriving at new schools. We were the only ones we knew. So we often would just sit together at lunch break and tea break because we hadn't made any new friends yet. So that was something I was going to ask you. You said that you'd lived in those five countries by the time you turned 13. And so I wondered if inevitably that had contributed to the closeness between the three of you, all this moving around and having to start again. Yeah. And of course, you know, like, like most people, you don't really stop and think about your life and your background and your childhood until something seismic like this happens. Because I just assumed other kids had those sorts of sibling relationships. But now that readers are sharing stories with me, I realise just how lucky and how privileged we were that we had siblings, that I had sisters, that we were so close in age, that those 
moves as children meant that only the three of us knew and could share the same memories. There was no one else in our life, not even our parents, really knew the things that we were going through as as young girls. So uh, we were very tight and, and we stayed tight really right up until we started uh, you know, sharing houses, going to university. And it was just when the last, I'd say, you know, 15 years where we moved into state, got married, had children, that we were geographically separated, really. So, but that those ties have, have, have you know, continued. So tell me about the middle sister who you call Dreamcatcher. And I want you to correct a mistake of mine here, something we just mentioned. You call your middle sister Dreamcatcher. And you talk, call the sister who you lost, your younger sister, Star Girl. Now, I had assumed that those were nicknames that you'd had for each other uh, all of your life, mm. but I gather that I'm not right about that. So tell me a little bit about how you came to those nicknames and then let's talk about Dreamcatcher, what she was like as a child, and then we'll move to Star Girl. Yeah. Well, Nicole, I when I decided I was going to try to attempt to write this book, I just assumed I would call uh, all the, the the people in my life that I was going to talk about by their actual names. So my middle sister is Soraya, my youngest sister who died is Monica. But I found there was still such a huge emotional block for me. Every time I'd sit at my laptop, I could not type her name. I, I couldn't type a name and type the word died. It, it was still too soon because I did start it within a few weeks of her dying. And as the weeks went on, I thought, have I, you know, is, is this the most ridiculous thing anyone's ever attempted? You don't hear of many people writing a book of this nature straight after uh, this sort of sudden uh, violent death. And one day I was taking one of my ISO walks through the Royal Botanic Gardens here in Sydney, and I was standing under this tree, this fig tree, which we'll talk about a bit later. And I was bereft, not only from my grief, but also the realisation I didn't think I was going to be able to write this book. And then suddenly it felt like the tree talked to me and it said, well, think of some other ways to tell your story without having to say your sister's names. And I thought, what do you mean? How? Create characters. And I thought, wow, yes, that, that would work. And then I could put a bit of distance between me. I could become the narrator of this life that I had with my sisters. And that in that moment, I thought I'm going to call my younger sister Stargirl because she was a star and my middle sister Dreamcatcher because she is temperamentally the sweetest, most gorgeous person you could ever meet. And as soon as I gave them those monikers, the story just was much more easy for me to tell. So, no, we, we'd never called ourselves that. In the book I described, our nickname actually for my younger sister, Monica, was Mooks. So that, that was Why the Why was that? Well, um, she was a naughty little kid and there's lots of naughty stories that I share, in, including me. I was naughty as well. And we, because we did live overseas from where most of our relatives lived, it meant that when our relatives, for instance, our grandmother would come from South Africa, it was a big deal. It was so exciting because we would only see our, our relatives maybe every five, ten, nine, you know, sort of years. So the preparations were extreme. They would begin weeks before and things would be laundered and the 
the spare rooms would be ready. And because we grew up with very exotic food in our childhood that we didn't often have here in Australia, my parents would start pre- preparing some of these dishes. Like pig's trotters was a really famous South African a curry that my grandmother taught us uh, to like in the end. Uh, you know, brains and chicken feet and all sorts of weird stuff that kids really didn't like. And one of the things we did enjoy was a biscuit that she would bring from South Africa, a, a little sort of crunchy, swirly biscuit called a murku. And they're spicy, they've got beautiful sort of fennel and chilli in them, and we love them because we couldn't get them in Australia. And she would bring packets of this. And one particular visit, she brought a huge packet of it. But because it was so rare, our parents instructed us that this packet had to last weeks and weeks and that we were all rationed to just one biscuit every day so it would last longer. So my grandmother arrived and by the end of that weekend, we'd all gone to the pantry cupboard and the packet was still in the cupboard, but it was empty and there were just some crumbs and some oily fingerprints. Someone had eaten all the murku. We couldn't believe it because this is what we were looking forward to all these years. And it turns out that uh, Monica, my younger sister, had been sneaking into the pantry when no one was looking and she scoffed the whole packet. And, it and was made the, no attempt to hide the no, evidence of the crime. Not at said. all. It was, it was the size of a pillowcase. I mean, I don't know how she fitted it all in, but she didn't even take the packet, empty packet and put it in the rubbish bin. She left it there in the pantry so that we could see it empty. And when, you know, she didn't own up to it at at first, but eventually with the threat of a wooden spoon, she admitted that, yes, it had been her. So after that, the family kept calling her Murku girl and we kept sending her up about how she'd eaten all the murku that weekend. And over the years, that became shortened to Mooks. And so that became our nickname for her in the family, Mooks. So that story about Stargirl gives us a little bit of an insight into her personality. You describe her at various stages as enigmatic, as as ethereal, as the brilliant non-conformist. You also describe her as headstrong. So there's a couple more of the family anecdotes that I'd love you to share. Mm. You were mentioning about the importance of family visits from overseas, how they were pretty rare. And there's a lovely chapter where you talk about a visit from your grandmother, your ayah. Tell us about the curtain incident (laughs) when your ayah came to stay. So my ayahs was a very traditional Indian woman, which meant that she wore a sari, which is really just one piece of long fabric that Indian women, I don't know how they do it because I've never been able to replicate it, just perfectly wrap it and pleat it and pin it and then shimmy in and spend the whole day in it when they basically feel like, you know, they're completely uh, wrapped up in these bandages. But she made it look so beautiful and elegant and we'd always sit on a bed in the morning and watch her get ready for her day and the way she would, you know, um, brush her hair and put coconut oil and there's a very famous face cream that Indian women of that generation always used, oil of ole. It was a lovely pink musk smelling. And she'd put that over her face and she would just look so beautiful and then wrap herself in these beautiful saris. And one day uh, we were sitting on the bed watching her and uh, and my middle sister, Saraya, had to go and visit some friends and, and we were left, Monica and I, Stargirl, to our own devices. So after we had our showers, we thought we'd sneak back into Aya's room 
and pretend to be Aya and, and be beautiful and glamorous. And so we used a hairbrush and we did all the things we knew we, we shouldn't do. We combed our hair, we made it into little buns and we put on some oil of ole. And of course- How we, old were you, Indira, at this point? Probably about eight and six, not nine and yeah, that sort of age. So we knew it was wrong, but we just couldn't stop ourselves because it just looked, everything was so pretty and beautiful. And we wanted to try a sari, but they were too big for us. So what we realised is we had beautiful blue turquoise um, bro brocade curtains in the spare room and a matching bedspread. And it was very Which had been hung especially to honour yes. your grandmother. Yes, so it had all been prepared for our grandmother's visit and we'd been told not to touch anything and this was just special and expensive and for, for Aya's visit. But, of course, it just looked like a sari to us. So we were looking at these curtains thinking they would be perfect. So we took one side of the curtain each and started twirling and wrapping ourselves and throwing it over our shoulders and pinning it into our jeans and pretending that we were shimming around in saris and that we were going to a fabulous ball and we were driven there in stretch limousines and we were going to dance and everyone was going to take photos of us in our beautiful saris, not realising they were curtains and the boys would want to dance with us, but we wouldn't want to dance with them because they were smelly. And the two of us would just dance together and spin ourselves in our saris and, and just have the, the best, most exciting Cinderella sort of experience. And in the middle of this, we completely forgot we were actually wearing curtains and we'd spun so tightly, we'd actually pulled the curtain rod off the ceiling and it had come crashing down, pulling plaster and breaking bits of wood and falling on our backs. Oh, my gosh. We got into so much trouble. All the adults came running back in and we were told to put up a sheet on the window and that we'd been so, so naughty. How could we do this? This was a terrible thing. Ayers, a special guest. And when we were Ayers, we'd know, you know, what a naughty, naughty thing that we had done as children. Hard to pick them, but I think my other favourite was the, um, the story of the great autograph scam at the cricket. <laughs> Yeah, I have a brother and a father who mad cricketers, and I think you and I are around about the same age, so I well remember that West Indies team and the um, Viv Richards and all yeah. of them. So tell us the story about when the three Nigeria girls went off to the cricket. So we were living in Launceston in Tasmania at the time, quite a, a small town really, and we never got any of the visiting international cricket teams because we were so small. We were cricket mad, our family. Uh, we'd grown up with it since we were little toddlers in our bassinets and so when they said there was going to be a special exhibition match of the West Indy team playing the Tasmanians, we were so excited. And as you said, it was a time when the West Indian team were the biggest, best, most exciting, glamorous team. There was Viv Richards and Joel Garner. Joel Garner and Gus Logie. Oh, my God, Michael Holding. It was the most amazing team. So this day we got ready. And, again, we did this on our own. I don't even know where our parents were. They were working or doing something. And uh, we, were, we were members, so we had the tickets already organised and we just got our picnic basket, our thermos, our transistor radio. We were so nerdy about going to the cricket. Made now, how old are the three of you at this stage? So about the same age, is you know, probably about 10 11, 9, so all pre-teen sort of age group. And, yeah, we walked down to the Cricket Oval and found our seats. We knew exactly where we wanted to sit so that we could be close to the players, walking back up to the players' box so we could tap them on the back and touch a god. And we were just so excited. 
And we took our autograph books as well because autograph books were such a big thing for that age group. And to have a signature of one of the players, oh, my gosh, it would be so prized and we could boast about it at school the next day. So we were sitting there watching the game and little Monica, my star girl sister, thought, okay, she was a bit bored and thought, I'll run down to the fence line and there was a cricketer standing quite close and I'll try to get an autograph. But she was so tiny, they wouldn't have been able to see her on the other side of the fence. And there were so many other kids there all waving their autograph books, trying to get autographs. So she was being quite unsuccessful. So we carried on watching the game and it was so exciting. Uh, that I think it was uh, David Boone had his... Um, he was playing as well. So, you know, we were, and he was a local Tassie boy. So we, we were pretty glued to the um, cricket. And then we noticed we hadn't seen Stargirl for a while. And I was scanning the fence line looking for her. And suddenly I noticed that rather than her waving her autograph book at the cricketers, there was a throng of little kids around her. And I'm thinking, why? And there, and then this little kid breaks away from the throng and runs up the stairs past me, waving his autograph book, saying, Mom, Dad, you're not going to believe the autograph I've got. And I'm thinking, oh, no, what has she done? So I race down and yank her out of the group and say, what are you doing? And she said, well, you know, the kids came up to me because we were one of the few dark-skinned people in Launceston at the time. And the assumption from these Anglo kids is that we must be related to the West Indy players. That's why we're in the members area. And when they've asked her, are you related? She tells a little fib and says, oh, yes, yes, I'm related to the West Indy players. Viv Richards is my dad. And of course, the kids go, your, your dad's Viv Richards. Oh, my God, can we have your autograph? Because she's the kid of one of the famous cricketers. And being Stargirl, she said, sure, and just on the spot makes up a signature, Monica Richards, and starts signing that in an autograph book. And I can't believe you know, how naughty she was. And I say, I'm going to tell mum and dad, you're going to be in so much trouble. But I decide not to because I realise that, she made their day. Those kids were so excited. They really thought she was famous. And that I was thinking when I wrote the book, a lot of them may still have her autograph in their autograph books, never knowing that she never was Vivian Richards, you know, daughter. But I hope know. one of them reads your book and comes <laughs> forward with that autograph. It just, I just thought that story really encapsulates the mischief and the impishness and the creativity. Yeah. To think of something to be that young and to think of something that clever. <laughs> so you don't write a lot about it. We're not going to talk a lot about it. But you said that um, when she became a teenager, she that sort of recklessness and headstrong behaviour mm. led her to indulge in some high-risk behaviour. But nonetheless, she went on to have a very successful career as a Walkley Award-winning journalist and as a political advisor. Then in 2020, at the age of 48, at the early stages of lockdown in Melbourne, Mm. Stargirl committed suicide. How did you find out, Indira? It was a phone call uh, from her husband uh, late one night. I'd just come back from work and we knew that things were really difficult for her. She was struggling like a lot of people who uh, cope with their you know, poor mental health. The lockdown was just awful. And it wasn't good that she wasn't getting a lot of mental health support. She wasn't on any medication, even though we'd encouraged her to do that. So the main way that she was managing her mental health during the pandemic was swimming. She swam every day at the local pool. And of course, during the pandemic in Melbourne, uh, they closed all the pools. Yeah. So I knew 
that she was going to be pretty lost, pretty on her own. And because she refused to get any sort of support, it, it wasn't going to go very well. Uh, and so when that call happened, uh, I was obviously just devastated. But it was this little bit of a niggling fear that had sat there for a few weeks because I thought this is such an extreme situation that we're in as a community um, and how an individual who has some of these challenges can cope when someone who's, you know, pretty mentally well is struggling. Uh, I, I just didn't think it was it was going to go, you know, well during this time. So uh, it was, you know, just, just an absolute, you know, gut-wrenching, um, seismic tear in our universe. You use the words apop- apocalyptic. You say it was the end of everything. One of the things you talk about in the book is guilt. Pretty early on you say that you asked yourself how you could have failed her. And a bit later on in the book, you write that um, that this is quite a common thing, that people who are close to someone who commits suicide, well, they worry about two things. They worry that other people will blame them. And you say, hell, we blame ourselves. That seemed to me to be incredibly harsh and self-punishing. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Why would you blame yourself? Yeah. Um. It's it's an interesting experience because we do feel that we have more control over other people's lives than we actually do. We do. We think, uh, you know, we can make our partner happier, our kids are going to, you know, do well and fly. And and when these sorts of things happen, you realise you've actually not really got any control over much at all, not even your own life, let alone other other people. So that is also the realisation. But the first place you go into is why couldn't I have stopped this? Is was there something I could have done more than I did? And it's a it's a vicious cycle to get yourself into because the why and the blame and the guilt, um, there are no answers to it. You know, that that was something I thought Fortunately, I worked out quite earlier on, whereas I've now understood that so many people, when uh, people close to them take their lives, they can stay stuck in that place for a very long time. And just just, looking for reasons, trying to understand why. Yeah. Uh, The the why question is is a terrible question because there is no answer to why. And I think also being an older sibling and an older sister and having played this role in her life, all her life, uh, of just, you know, probably being too interventionist and keeping her too much on the straight and narrow and, and protective, the protecting role of the her and um, guiding her, playing that role, that also probably means that you you take on more responsibility for things that happen in your younger siblings' lives. So in a way, I was also a parent being an older sibling and we spent so much time, the three of us, a- away from our parents or on our own. So I think... That is why parental grief when they lose a child is is so terrible as well because you do feel, um, you know, I I have known, I had known my sister all her life. There aren't many people you can say that about that you have known every single day of their life. So it's a very, very strong connection. 
but it's very natural, very normal. Uh, I, I started seeing a grief counsellor very soon after my sister died and she was able to explain to me what a universal feeling that is. The, the, the feeling guilt. of guilt. Mm. Yeah, the blame, the responsibility. But, uh, you know, it, it is so unhelpful because uh, I did come to realise that another person's life is that mm. person's life mm. and they are going to do what they are going to do. Uh, you think you can change the direction, but often we cannot. Let's talk about now your response to your grief. You say that the morning after you found out, you woke up with an overwhelming urge to flee. What did you do? Where did you go? Where did you end up? I had no sense of where I wanted to go. All I knew is I just wanted to run away from myself. I wanted to rip myself out of my body and get away from my body. It was a really interesting sensation. I've never felt that before, but of course, impossible to do. So I wanted to just feel an extreme, I guess. So I, I, I put on all my jogging stuff and I ran and it was a freezing cold morning and I ran with my mouth open and the cold air was sort of burning my lungs and and I needed to just heighten the feeling. I think that it was that sort of feeling. And I just remember running and running with no direction and found myself suddenly in the Botanic Gardens, which is about two kilometres from where I live in Potts Point. And as soon as I stepped into the greenery and the trees, there was this immediate sense of enclosure like being given a hug by these trees and my mind started to calm immediately I, I wasn't expecting it I hadn't gone there to find it but I was feeling this sensation of suddenly being still being calm only being able to hear my heartbeat and then a rhythm that was coming from the earth it was as if that land where I was standing was speaking to me and comforting me and giving me some sort of solace it it was the most extraordinary feeling. And after that, nearly every morning, I would do this walk to that little space under that tree. And that's where I discovered the tree. And I met the tree a few days later. Indira, you say in your book how, how right that felt, being in that place at that particular tree. And you say that it was as if you'd returned to your ancestral home. Do you want to talk a little bit about that concept? Yeah. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in the last two years going through my grieving and my healing process, returning to my childlike state, which has been interesting. So all the things I love doing as a child, I'm doing it now. And I Did you love trees as a I child? I loved trees. I loved climbing trees. I loved building tree houses in trees, hanging mm. from trees, mm. making swings and swinging in trees. I spent a lot of time in trees. We were very lucky. We often had very big trees in our back gardens where we lived. And even though I, in a lot of my work, have reconnected with nature and work closely with plants and, and gardening, uh, I hadn't experienced this sort of connection that I had with this tree where I felt where my skin and where the bark of the tree began and ended, I couldn't feel the difference. It just all flowed in one beautiful, continuous connection and Every part of the tree, I suddenly realised, this tree is my cousin. It is, its bark is my skin, its sap is my blood, its limbs and branches are my limbs. I give it 
it's carbon dioxide. It gives me it, my oxygen. Wow. I mean. You talk about the symbiotic relationship between the two of you. Yeah. And so even though I understand that logically, you know, it's something I've always known, but I've never felt it so emotionally before. And suddenly this tree was the most generous, kindest, caring soul I could possibly imagine. Look at everything you do for me. And what do I give you in return? You know, I pump, you know, uh, gases into the atmosphere and kill you off, cut you down, build roads around you, strangle you. Uh, and I just started to feel this amazing sense of protection as well towards the tree as much as the tree was protecting me. And that nurturing, that ability to just sit with it, not to have to ask or answer any questions, which sometimes can be quite difficult in your initial stages of grief. You don't know, you don't have the vocabulary for grief and you don't know how to express it. So it can be hard to be with people, but mm. a tree doesn't ask you that. Mm. It doesn't ask you to explain anything. It doesn't ask you how you are. It doesn't share condolences. It just is. It just is. And sometimes that's all you need. You just need to be. And that tree taught me that. And that experience prompted you to think more generally about the concept of nature as a healing force, um, as a saviour, I suppose, if you like. And you started to wonder if maybe this tree and nature generally could heal you, could help you to find a way through your grief. And you speak to a number of experts in the field. You talk about those encounters in your book. You speak to experts in the field of astronomy, immunology, horticulture. You speak to experts in birds and ants, nature guides. We don't have time to talk about all of those, but they make for fascinating reading and they must have been fascinating discussions. There's just a couple I want to focus on. Sure. You spoke to Paul Nicholson, who was the horticulturalist at the Botanic Gardens, and I'd like you to share with us what you learned about your tree. <laughs> yeah, he... The other amazing thing about this, Nicole, is I didn't know any of these people really, and I called them out of the blue, mostly in lockdowns, and so they weren't going out leaving their homes. So a lot of them how we found a day or an hour in between all of this to to meet up and spend time under my tree. I look back and think it's it's extraordinary. But I contacted Paul and he must have thought it was odd. This woman who he vaguely remembered from the news and television saying, I want to meet you under this tree that I want to know about because I've formed this connection. And even though he was a horticulturalist, I think he initially thought that was a very strange thing to want to do. He was intrigued, that's for sure. And I asked him all these questions about the tree and I found out that it was 150 years old, mm -hmm. this Morton Bay fig. It had been planted in the 1870s by Charles Moses, who had started the gardens ages and ages ago, and that this particular tree had survived all sorts of things. It had survived sunburning incidents and attacked by pests and and. You know, and I thought, wow, this, this tree is amazing. It had a beautiful hollow in it, but I realised that, that was actually a scar. It was a sore that the tree was trying to heal itself from some of these incidents. So rather than looking at it as a fairy tale, it was actually its own pain on display that I could see when I'd, when I'd go there every day. And what also amazed me about the tree is where it stood rooted on the side of the Woolloomooloo Bay uh, on that hillside, and that was a, a really important um, harbour and wharf when people would come and go from Sydney. So all the people arriving for the gold fields and the gold rushes would come to those wharves in Woolloomooloo and my tree was already there growing. It would have 
seen all of that. And then later on during the First World War, it would have seen all these young men and women leaving to the, the front lines and then many of them not to return, seeing all that loss and that heartbreak. It would have absorbed that and been right there and seen it. And so me coming and visiting it really wasn't the only grief that it had seen. It probably wasn't even the biggest grief that it had seen. How many other hundreds, thousands had come for comfort under its branches and it had helped and supported them. So that was just the most amazing uh, realisation that I was not the first to be drawn to its power. And this tree was there long before me. Hopefully, if we protect it, it'll be there long after me. And that sense of continuity that nature taught me was also a really important part of grieving and healing is that this is not just happening to you. It is part of life and death. The They're cycle. all connected. Mm. It's the cycle of life. Mm. And, you know, a loss doesn't have to be the end of your world. You know, there, there are some births and renewals and there are some losses that is just the way it is and the tree was able to show me that you then look more generally at nature and where you live you can see I thought it was amazing that you realized from your balcony you could see your tree from your balcony but you also see the wide green expanse of the botanic gardens and you get a lot of comfort from looking at that green And you learn that there's a medical term for this, biophilia. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, that concept of biophilia and what you learned about that. So biophilia is the innate need that we actually all have as humans to immerse ourselves in nature. It is something that we can't even explain. If I said to you, why do you find looking at green things comforting? Most people wouldn't really understand. So I wanted to understand that more. Why being around my tree made me feel so good? Why staring at clouds changing? Why looking at um, stars in the sky, you know, the, the way the sun shimmered on the harbour water? And I found that biophilia was this general term for this wonderful connection that we all have with nature and that as we grow and grow older and then build these, you know, separate lives from nature, the connection is still there, but we've pulled ourselves away from it. So when we have a break or a holiday, no one says, I want to pitch my tent in the middle of George Street or a freeway. They, you know, plan to go uh into the forest or on the banks of a a river or down to the beach. Why? Why is that where we want to go when we live in these cities, in these concrete buildings? And so biophilia is really about how explaining why being in nature, being around green, you know, that, that we're actually hardwired in our DNA to see greens and be drawn to them because they remind us of where we'll be safe where we'll find food, where we can build our homes. So it makes sense. It's when we're born with this innately. No one actually teaches Mm. us. It's our eyes looking at green, immediately feeling rested. When we look at branches, and when I'd sit and watch my branches in my tree, how the branches split into smaller and smaller branches, that fractal uh, growth is actually very calming for us. And we find it in clouds. We find it in, in the tributaries of rivers as well. And we like it because it allows our, our eyes to rest and move. And we don't like things that are hard, like concrete and buildings. I, I Again, this was new to me. And the reason we couldn't sit there and look at a concrete building all day is because it's harsh and our eyes hurt. But the wonderful thing about leaves, 
and sunsets and wind is that there's just slight movement, little bits of shimmer that we find very restful and really relaxing. And it started to make sense why I could sit there on my back looking at clouds morph into turtles and little old ladies' noses all day long. And I found it so relaxing. It just started to make sense. Indira, let's talk a little bit now about the process of writing this book. Um, As I understand it, it started as a journal and then about six weeks after your sister's death, that was when you decided to turn it into a book. Is that right? This is also why I think an angel has been watching over this whole process. So completely out of the blue about, I think, I don't know, nine eight, nine weeks after my sister died, I got an email uh, from a publisher, my publisher at Murdoch, who I've been talking to on and off for a number of years and know well, and we meet about ideas, as many authors do. We hadn't come up with something that we both thought would work. And then out of the blue, Jane sends me this email and says, would you be interested in writing a book about biophilia? She had no idea that my sister had died. She had no idea that I was already immersing myself in nature, doing these walks to my tree, that I'd started making some notes. And I looked at the email and I thought, oh, there's no way I can write a book, not about this, because I'd have to talk about my sister. How do you talk about uh, your younger sister taking their life when it's only happened a few weeks ago where you're still in huge grief, you're in a lockdown, I was working full-time and I know the process of writing a book. (laughs) So I thought, no, I can't do this. And then I sat with it for a day and this is when I was with the tree and the tree said, you know, if you called your sister this name, maybe that would help you write this book because you can't talk about biophilia and your connection with nature without this grief story. It, it is has to be mm. part of the story. So I sent an email back to Jane and said, I think I can do it, but this is the story I'm also going to tell in the book. And so she rang me straight away and said, I'm so sorry. Oh, my gosh, I had no idea. And she said, do you think you can do this? And I said, no, I, I don't think I can. I don't know. But if you're willing along, willing to go along with this journey and with the risk that it may be something I can't do, I'm happy to give it a go. Indira, you mentioned that you were seeing a grief counsellor. Did you talk to her about that and, and what she thought were the therapeutic pros and cons of writing about it in this way? She'd never heard of anyone do it before. So she was concerned because there is the chance that too early in your grief process of bringing up too many memories may be overwhelming and too difficult to process. Uh, she wouldn't say to anyone, hey, this is a great thing to do if you know <laughs> to... Uh, help you through your grief. Journaling is a well-known thing, but that's a much gentler process than this sort of book. You know, this sort of book was me separating from me, the sister, and me and the writer. I had to become two entities, and the writer knew this was an extraordinary story. If the sister could survive it, could survive the writer ripping open the heart, digging in there and pulling all this emotion out of it and all the stories. So how hard was it to write? It The hardest thing I've ever had to do, and I think it almost broke me, there was a couple of weeks, uh, three weeks almost, where I was almost catatonic. I don't know what the state was. I would sit in front of the laptop and I couldn't do anything. I, I couldn't write a word. I couldn't read a book. I couldn't watch television. It it was the strangest situation. There was an absolute emotional block where 
the sister had just said, this is too hard, I can't go on. And then after that three-week period, there was that little breakthrough that came one morning about four o'clock in the morning. And I realised what it was is that I needed to, and I didn't understand this until it came, the words came up on the screen as I was tapping them. I needed to come to terms with the fact that my tree was healing me and she used a tree to take her life. Mm. That was the block. Mm. And as soon as that came out, the mm. rest of the story just completely flowed. Mm. You, you write about that late in the book and that, I have to say that's one of the most gut-wrenching parts of the book, that this tree that brought you solace and wisdom and comfort and inspiration for you then to have to reconcile that with the fact that she lost her life via a tree. So I was wondering, I think you've used the word cathartic elsewhere to talk about this. It's, it's a term that's bandied around a lot, but I did wonder inevitably, did writing this book help you to cope with your grief? Yeah, it, it did because it made me face it, not hide or run away, which is I think what a lot of us want to do when grief hits us. We have a bag of shadows that we say, I'm going to put it in there and come back to it later. And then hopefully that later never happens. And then another grief happens. And then that bag gets full and full and full. And then often one day there's no room and that grief suddenly all spills out. And suddenly grief from when you were two, when you were 13, when you were 30, when you were 80, all comes out at the same time. And I've seen that happen to a lot of people. And I didn't want that to happen to me, I have to admit. I didn't want it to be so debilitating that I couldn't carry on, that I every day was going to have a little bit of grey. So I wanted to give it a go. And I didn't know if it was going to work. I didn't think writing a book could be healing. I didn't think hanging out of with a tree and picking up feathers and watching ants could be healing. I mean, I honestly, the journalist in me just went, hello, come on, I don't think so. And what had to happen, Nicole, is that I removed myself almost from my human state in, in, in the terms of the way we look at ourselves in nature is that humans are at the apex and that all the other creatures are less and less important and we're the top of the heap. And what I had to do and what nature taught me is that, no, you're part of nature just like me. You're no more important than a tree. You're no more interesting than an ant. And, in fact, all of those things do much more important things for the planet and nature than you do. All you do is destroy everything that we make and everything that we build. And everything's been created to make you happy. And there was this moment where I was under the tree and feeling such a sense of, I'm never, ever going to let anything happen to you. Like it was just so strong. And I realised that, you know, we're never going to save what we don't love. And so writing this book was not only going to be a healing process for me, but I hope that it would help a whole lot of grief we're feeling in ways that we haven't been able to articulate. When we see climate change, when we see the damage we're causing to the environment, uh, we do have a choice. We can behave in a very different way, but we have to acknowledge the grief first that we feel and then that healing has to come and then it can activate the love, which then activates the action. And that's what I hope this book will do for people is that let's talk about our grief, whatever it may be, a, a grief over an anxiety, a loss, a career, a relationship, the planet, 
there's a lot of grief that has started to bubble up since the pandemic and we need to give our permission, ourselves permission to talk about it, to call it what it is and to address it. You know, I really believe don't wait to address your grief, you know, and don't be scared of your grief. I was so scared of grief before this happened to me because I'd seen how what it had done to other people. But now I realise that grief is only a reflection of love and you can't grieve unless you are loved and unless you have loved and loving is a really good thing. So the size of your grief is just a size of your love. So grief is a wonderful thing, actually. You're right when you say it is such a universal experience, isn't it? Because I think before the pandemic, there's already there have been a lot of people writing about echo grief and that concept of echo grief, and many of us are experiencing that. And then the pandemic was superimposed upon that. So there's grief at the loss of freedom and grief at the various losses that the pandemic has created. So I think that most of us walking around feel that double grief. You are dealing then with a triple grief on top of what you've, your very deep and personal loss. And I think, I guess I'm answering my own question, but this is what you've done. You, you, I think you're very right in what you say, that this is a very universal book. So in some ways it's deeply personal. It's about your own personal grief at this most horrific thing that has happened to you and to your family. But in other ways, it is more universal than that. It's about, it's about the grief that everybody is experiencing right now and ways ways to deal with that. And I was wondering, you've asked yourself a few questions through the book. And one of them at one point, at one point you say that you hope that Stargirl's death won't haunt you forever, that you hope that that won't grief won't forever cast a pall over your life. And you say that you ask yourself, can nature be an alchemist, transforming my sorrow into the beauty I see around me? And I wondered, did you find an answer to that question? Mm. So what is it? So grief is a really interesting thing, Nicole, because it's not linear. It's not like I'm feeling less grief today than I was tomorrow, and then to, and uh, you know yesterday, and then tomorrow it'll even be less. What I find is really fascinating with grief is it bounces around. And so today I could be feeling maybe a little sad, and then tomorrow not sad at all, and then a couple of days later really really cut up and and feeling the heaviness of it. But overall, I can feel myself healing the, the fact that so many people are connecting with the mm. stories is such an important part of the healing for me. And I wasn't expecting that. I, you know, I always said, look, if there's one person that it, this helps in some way, I, don't, I didn't know how, uh, that would be a good thing. I really couldn't ask for more than that. So, so tell to- us about what that was something I wanted to ask you about. You said that so many people, people that you don't know, have reached out to you with their stories of grief, but also people who you do know, who you didn't know were harbouring these stories of grief. Mm. How does that feel when people, when you realise that you have sort of achieved what you set out to do, that you've opened up this conversation about grief and people are then wanting to share their stories with you? I don't know. I'm still trying to process that. I mean, it literally has been happening over the last four weeks. So part of me feels... Again, I, I've still been seeing my grief counsellor and she has been as amazed, you know, her, our, her office is above the Dimmicks in George Street. And she was saying to me the other week, what would you have said a year ago coming into my office, you know, in the depths of despair, that a year later, this is before there was any idea that this book would really become a book, a year later, it would be in the front window of the Dimmicks bookstore right underneath this office where we've been sitting 
all it was the book month. of the month for them wasn't it you, you said that they had yeah. the huge post that must have been surreal to walk on your way up to see her and to see that larger than life in the window it was it was it just doesn't happen uh, it was just I think I'm still even getting over I mean every part of this whole experience has felt a little surreal really uh surreal good and obviously surreal traumatic um and I and I'm not sure if that's how most people feel when they go through grief, it is an out-of-body experience. But because of my choice to write a book that fortunately has has resonated and I think will get to the people who need it, it has just been quite extraordinary. So I don't know. I've just got to, you know, and you're in the busy busyness of the book promotion and you're meeting mm. people and hearing their stories. Mm. So I do have to try to make as much time as I can in between to go back to my tree and just sit there and go, mm-hmm. wow, you know, and then my tree will go, you don't need to tell me, guess who was here today? Guess who left those flowers under my branches yesterday? A woman who lost her son through suicide or two sisters that lost a sister to cancer. So people have been visiting my tree. that's mm-hmm. now become their tree, which is wonderful. And they're sharing stories of their own trees in their life, their own um, pictures of their own special trees. It's just touched people extraordinarily. And I think, you know, there is a privilege that comes with being someone uh, with a profile in the media, particularly when you're playing a role. A lot of people do look at broadcasters and news presenters as, oh, they know everything and they know what's going on. And of course, we know even less than most people, but that is the way culturally we are positioned in society and so I think when you do get an opportunity to step into these stories and to share the stories I knew that I did feel a responsibility to do that because it's not an easy thing to do because not only do you going to have to write the story and yes I had some of the skills to do that I knew but you're going to have to talk about the story endlessly and that is very very difficult for people who are survivors of of grief and these sorts of losses not everyone can do it I didn't know if I could actually do it myself but I knew I had the skills and the training I just had to emotionally be able to do it so there was a responsibility that I felt that this is a moment in time where you have now had an experience if you have you know the ability to share it you you possibly do need to Indira, that seems a pretty good note to end on. Thank you for sharing your incredible story. Thank you for the insight that you shared with all of your readers. Thank you for speaking to me today. It's a wonderful book that's resonating with so many people, but I wish you the very, very best with it. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's been great chatting to you. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbody.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.